Good morning to you. Hey, it's a little lighter out there than it usually has been. We, I, I forgot this morning we switched time. It was nice to not trip over the bushes as I walked out of my house this morning. Hey, guys, we are turning to perhaps one of the most beloved stories in all the Bible today, uh, David and Goliath. And uh, I, I've heard this story taught many times in my youth and in my adult years. In fact, I remember when I was pastoring uh, in the Chattanooga area years ago, uh, the school that I graduated from, the high school, Baylor School, uh, was dedicating a new chapel. And uh, I went, by the way, this is a side road, but when I was walking in the chapel, the chaplain, oh, I, I won't say that, it's about a, I've already told you what school it was, so I won't say. Uh, anyway, at the dedication of the chapel, uh, they asked Billy Graham to come and dedicate the chapel. So Billy Graham was the speaker that day, and I mean, this is, this is, 25 years ago, and I remember he talked about David and Goliath. Uh, it's a great, great story. And uh, I'm sure in 15 minutes he did a lot better job than I'm going to do in 45. But uh, it's a wonderful story because we see here the, the giant uh, who seems to be the completely uh, uh, undefeatable foe. And here's little David, just a youth with a slingshot, <laughs> taking down the giant. And we're all encouraged by that as we think about our bosses and what we'd like to do to them, right? Uh, <laughs> no, but we, we all have these Goliaths in our lives. And we're all encouraged by David, who through faith uh, took on the giant. Well, <clears throat> of course, uh, those are important lessons. And we'll hope to, to glean from uh, that lesson ourselves today and apply it to our lives. But remember, when we started our study of First and Second Samuel, we said... The main character in First and Second Samuel is God. And God is still the main character in this story. So we don't want to get so carried away with David that we miss God, who is the one who is the all-star, all-conference champion <laughs> in this story. So we'll be sure to read it from that perspective because that's exactly what the author of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings is telling us, that God is the one who redeems his people. And my, how he does his redemptive work. It is truly amazing. Well, let's read the story. It's 58 verses, so it'll take us a few minutes. It's a great story. And there's a sense in which, you know, when you're teaching this story, some of you may have done this recently on this story, you just kind of want to get out of the way of the story. You know, it tells itself. Uh, but we will certainly make some observations from the story that we ought to make and try to apply it to our lives. Well, let's look at 1 Samuel 17. David, you know, in chapter 16 uh, has just been anointed by Samuel as the king. Uh, doesn't seem to be public information at this point. In fact, David has already made appearance in Saul's court by playing the harp and calming Saul's nerves and, and actually dealing with some of the demons that were in his life. Uh, but that was in David's younger years, and it seems as though Saul didn't recognize him a few years later, as we'll see they have an encounter in this chapter, and it seems as though Saul doesn't know who he is in this chapter either. Uh, of course, you know, kings deal with a lot of people, and uh, boys grow up, and I don't know if you have this in your church, but around here, if, if, if uh, I knew some kid when he was 8 or 9, by the time he's 15 or 16, I don't recognize the kid anymore. He's changed so much. Well, that'd be the way it was here with David as well. Well, let's take a look at uh, 1 Samuel 17, and let's read the Word of God. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. 
And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one, on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You know what? Let's stop right there and let's just let's take this in pieces. I think it'll be better to do it that way. So let's look first of all at verses 1 through 11. And would you please notice we got enemies. You've got them. It's important to realize you've got enemies. You know, I remember reading an article some years ago on preaching and the article uh, was written by uh, Stanley Howerhouse and the article simply said preaching as though we had enemies and his complaint was a lot of preachers are out there trying to preach the gospel as though no one was opposing it. It's just this kind of milk toast, you know, principles for life and a little bit of this, a little bit, a little bit of encouragement, but no sense that you're being opposed by the entire demonic world. A preacher needs to know and a teacher needs to know that you're in a fight. Uh, there are there, the, the flesh is opposing you, the world order is opposing your message, and the devil himself is opposing your message. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are engaged with you in a battle when you're trying to teach your children, when you're trying to teach a Sunday school class, or if you're trying to preach, all of it. Preach, teach, lead as though you had enemies because you do. And here we see sometimes these enemies are awesome. Notice first of all that these enemies constantly confront us. And we're told that... Uh, the devil uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So he prowls around, just looking for opportunities all the time, 24-7. He is on the march, looking for weaknesses in your defense, looking for ways in which to exploit you and to uh, bring you down. They constantly confront us. Now, why do I say that? Well, in these first three verses, you have a great description of the tactics of the enemy. Uh, you can look on your map on the bottom of page 519 in the ESV study Bible. It doesn't show it graphically there, but you see on that bottom expanded map, it says the Valley of Elah. You can see that that valley is running east and west. And the significance of that valley is that it takes you up from the coast. Remember the Philistines were coastal people they had probably uh, in ancient times come from Crete. They settled on the coast there. And the Valley of Elah was running east and west and allowed them to make a move from the coast 
and to migrate up toward Bethlehem, and then other valleys would allow them to migrate up toward Jerusalem. So these valleys were the ways in which they made it inland. Now notice on your map there that Ekron and Gath are near the coast. And the valley of Elah, and of course Ekron and Gath, we've already seen, those are Philistine capital, like county seats. They're very important villages for the Philistines. Well, if the Philistines want to move inland and take territory, how are they going to do it? Right through the Valley of Elah. So what's happening is they are arraying themselves in the Valley of Elah. If you, and actually some of you have been to the Valley of Elah, and you can see it that on the, on the south side would be where the uh, Israelites would uh, position themselves. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, on the north side? No, on the, on the south side. On the north side, the Philistines would position themselves. And then you come down the valley to do battle. So the reason the Philistines are here is they are threatening the geographical, territorial integrity of Israel. It's a constant threat. They're right there, ready to come on up the Valley of Elah and take over the, the cities and the villages of Israel. So we'll see that even with this victory that David's going to win on behalf of the Israelites, it doesn't, it doesn't finish the Philistines. I mean, here in this text, uh, you, you heard Goliath say, why don't we just do it this way? Instead of killing all these people, let's just have a one-on-one, and whoever wins takes the spoils. And if you win, all of our people will be your servants. And if, and if uh, we win, if I win, you'll be our servants. And, uh, of course, we know that when Goliath lost... The Philistines didn't keep the deal at all. They're a bunch of liars. And your, your big enemies are all liars. Demons, Satan himself, the world and the flesh, they're all liars. They tease you, they promise you things they'll never deliver on. But they're constantly engaging you in battle, constantly threatening your integrity as a man and threatening the integrity of your home and your church and your city. So they constantly confront us. This Valley of Elah is a very strategic place, and the devil is not stupid. He knows exactly where to go and where, where issues matter, and that's where he's going to take the battle. Notice, uh, secondly, in verses 4 through 10 that we read, our enemies are awesome. Really awesome. I mean scary. So look in verses 4 through 7, first of all, and you'll see they're awesome in their appearance. Now, why do I say that? Well, look in verse 4, and you see the word champion. Now, this is the only person in the Old Testament who's called a champion. Uh, so, Goliath was the one who could step forward and represent his entire people and take on the battle to himself. He comes as a real champion opposing uh, Israel. Once again, you've got a champion opposing you too. It's the devil himself. He represents all the demonic world, everything that's evil, and he opposes you. He's constantly trying to tease you into battle. And he is awesome. If we got one look at the devil, I think we'd just shrivel up and die. Uh, the Lord shields us from seeing the fullness of the opposition that's arrayed against us. I'm quite confident of that. Now, we know that our opponent can kill us. That's what Jesus says. He said, but he says, do not be afraid of the one who can kill your body. But, be a, but rather, fear the one who can kill your body and your soul and throw you into hell. In other words, fear God. Don't fear the one who can kill you. But He can kill you. And He is awesome. And so you see this champion. And what about this champion? Well, first of all, the guy is six, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, nine foot six inches. 
He's enormous. You've never seen anybody nine foot six inches. I remember one time uh, I was on a, a trip, uh, a missions trip, and I happened to be with Ralph Drollinger. Do you remember the name? Played for UCLA and then played professional ball. I forgot where he played. The guy's seven, three, something like that. The guy's huge. When he came to our youth group to talk to the youth, he said, yeah, I was born on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. <laughs> and so we were actually in Rome together at the same time, Ralph, Ralph and I were, and I was walking through the piazzas of Italy with Ralph Drollinger next to me. And if you, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. This guy is huge, and it's like the whole city just stopped, and everybody was looking and pointing. They weren't pointing at me. They were pointing at this guy. And I thought, this guy, everywhere he goes, People are just going, good heavens, that's a tall drink of water, you know, and all this kind of stuff. This guy is nine foot six. <laughs> He's two and a half feet taller than Ralph Drollinger. It's unbelievable. He's huge. He's not only tall. Look at this. I mean, he's obviously a very strong person. Uh, and you say, now how can this happen, nine foot six? Well, we don't know for sure, but there are some maladies. You, some of you physicians uh, are... Uh, familiar with it. I can't even pronounce what the malady is, but it's a tumor on the pituitary gland that can cause your growth hormones to keep going. And we've had some rare instances of this in human history that we're aware of in medical science. And so you can get people that are tall and still growing with that tumor. I'll come back to that in a moment. But for whatever reason, this guy is enormous. Now notice that he has a big helmet of bronze on his head. That must have been some helmet, custom designed for his big head. And then he has a coat of mail. And a coat of mail is just, it's fabric that links up uh, uh, metal. So it's, it's, a, it's a metal covering, but it's flexible because it's just links. And he's covered with it. So no spear, no sword could get through and, uh, to his vitals. So he has a coat of mail. Now look at the weight of the coat. 5,000 shekels of bronze. Do you know how heavy that is? 126 pounds. <laughs> so this huge guy has a 126-pound coat of mail. It doesn't seem to be slowing him down very much. I guess not if you're that big. So a 126-pound coat of mail. And then look at his, he, he's got bronze on his legs so that you're not going to be able to take his legs out from under him. He's got a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. That thing had to be huge. And then the spear that he had was like a weaver's beam. That's big. And then the spear had a head on it, and the head of that spear weighs 15 pounds. Now, some of you may have put the shot when you were younger. Uh, that's about what a, a shot put is. Is a high school shot 12 pounds maybe? I think a, a, you know, college is 16. But, I mean, you, have you ever picked up a shot? Uh, I mean, uh, you, this thing is, you know, it takes two hands for me to get it up. This guy, the end, of his, uh, the end of his spear was as heavy as a shot. It's unbelievable. This guy is just enormous. And so he's, he's uh, very awesome in appearance. But notice, secondly, he's awesome in messaging. He's awesome in what he had to say. He's threatening. He's harassing. He's teasing. He's provoking. He is saying, come on, y'all. I'm here, I'm ready to fight, where are you? And the heart of what he had to say is in verse 10. When he uses, when, when he uses the word defy, 
This is the Hebrew word harap. And it's used over and over again in the text, verse, right here in verse 10, verse 25, verse 26, uh, verse 36, verse 45. It's, it's used over and over again. He's defying the ranks of Israel. He is trashing them. He's trash-talking them. Uh, he is not just a big goon, but he is defying everything that you are and everything that you believe in. He is taking up his position against God and his hosts. And he is just boldly taking you onto your face. So he's awesome in appearance. He's also awesome in his message. And it's exactly what you're facing today and every day of your life. You have an awesome opponent in his appearance and in what he's saying to you. He's defying the host of Israel. He's defying the church. He's defying the God of the church every moment of your life. And then <clears throat> he's also awesome in his effect upon us and our leaders. Look what verse 11 says. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were so angry, so outraged, they went out and beat his butt. No? Look at verse 11. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. So that's the effect that our enemies have upon us. That's sometimes the effect that the culture has on you. You see things going in a direction that you don't think is very healthy. Maybe you see your kids doing things and you think, you know, it's just beyond me. You see your life spinning out of control. It just looks like it's completely hopeless and you're dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, what should have happened? What should have happened when some big goon gets up and defies the army of Israel? Well, you'd expect that the king of Israel, who is a head above all the other men, taller than any of the rest of them, and appointed to be their chief warrior, you'd expect him to stand up. Well, look what verse 11 says. Saul and all Israel. The king, the big cheese. Your champion is quaking in his boots back in the locker room. He ain't coming out. And so that's what the king should have done. He should have taken up the cause of his people. And he should have been willing to lay his life down. No way, Jose. Saul's in it for other reasons. He's not in it for the protection of Israel, as you see right here. He's in it for himself, and he's not going to risk his life taking on a nine-foot, six-inch goon. All right, let's look at verses 12 through 27. Let's read those together. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Forty days. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. 
And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting their war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion... The Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. All right, let's look at verses 12 through 27, Roman numeral 2, and notice God has a man and a plan. Okay? So we have enemies, but God's got a plan, and He's got a man. Let's look first of all at the plan. <laughs> verses 12 through 25, you say, I'm sorry, God, that's not much of a plan. You want to go back and give us plan B? <laughs> this is not going to do very well. You got David, who's a, the youngest kid in the family, so he's going to take the... The, the dirtiest job, take care of the sheep that belong to the family. So little David, you go off and do that. David, now take a break from that. Get some of you know, the house servants to take care of the sheep for a few hours. Now you run over and take the cheese to the commander so that he knows that the father of these boys is uh, taking care of him. So he'll be careful to take care of my three boys. Take the cheese to the commander. Take the bread to the boys and bring me back some news. So you, you be my gopher, David. Just go back and forth. You're the kid. And this is God's plan. <laughs> well, do you remember when God came to rescue us, it all kind of started in a dirty little village in the north of Galilee, a little town called Nazareth. You remember when that kid was born? He was born in a barn, <laughs> cattle stall. I mean, when God is working his plan, don't despise uh, the small uh, beginnings, uh, the ways in which he does his work. It looks like just ordinary business. It looks like... What he's doing couldn't hurt a flea. It looks like, you know, a, a room full of men like this who just around studying the Bible. Well, what harm could they do? What, what advancement of God's kingdom could they ever pull off? Well, I just say to the rest of the world, you watch out now. you got some people here who are studying God's Word. And they're all little Davids. And uh, they, they, maybe we're not much on our own. Maybe in the eyes of the world, we're just completely forgettable. But when God has a plan for a man, watch out. That's all I'm going to tell you. Now, this is the plan. It's very subtle. It's casual. It's matter of fact. You think, what is going to come out of this, if anything? And, of course, David's brothers think nothing. But God has another idea. And let's look at verses 22 through 27, and let's look at the man. So you got the plan and the man. Now, there's some things about this man you got to notice. He's, he's, he's a boy. That's the first thing you notice. He doesn't even seem to be a man. Doesn't even seem to be fully developed. Doesn't seem to matter to God. Uh, notice in verse 23, the first thing about him, he heard something. That's a very important four words in English. And David heard him. You can underline that. 
in your outline. And David heard him. That's really, really important. Everybody else had been hearing what the champion was saying. And all it caused them to do was to quake in their boots. David heard the same words and he had an entirely different reaction. Remember, we're already told David is a man after God's own heart. And I think what you see in this text beautifully illustrates why he was a man after God's own heart. He heard Goliath very differently than anybody else. He heard these words that defied the ranks of Israel. Now, notice then, David speaks. Now, you may not have noticed this as we studied 1 Samuel, but uh, you'll notice in verse 26, David said. Now, these are David's first words in the Bible. Now, we ran into David in chapter 16, but we never got a word from David, never heard, never had him quoted. Here are David's first words in verse 26. What does he say? What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And then he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David says, So what is the reward? The reward is that you get the king's daughter and your house will no longer be taxed. I'm sure my daddy would like that. That's nice. But this is the bigger issue. Here is this man. David doesn't see a nine-foot-six guy covered with 126 pounds of bronze and a sword like a, 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 a weaver's beam. He just simply looks at an uncircumcised Philistine who is defying the people of God. That's what he sees, and that's what he hears. Why does he see and hear that? Because he's a man after God's own heart. The driving compulsion behind David's life becomes very clear here in this text. The driving concern of David's life is the honor of God. That's what's moving him humanly through this entire story is that that's what he cares about, the honor of God. In addition to that, David believes in God and the provision he makes for his people who take up the defense of his honor. So David, first of all, is moved by the honor of God and secondly, he believes in the provision of God for those who defend his honor. That's what's going on with David that's unique to him here in this text. I'm convinced with David's adulteries and murders later on and all the stuff he does that's bad, he's a man after God's own heart. It's revealed right here. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who has the guts to defy the very hosts of God? That's what he's saying. That's what the man has. Now, David's great concern here is not militaristic. David's not saying hey, this Valley of Elah, this is a strategic place. I mean, this is worth dying for. David's concern is not economic. Hey, you know, if those Philistines come up here and take over our villages, we're going to be slaves for the rest of our lives and that's not going to be good for us and our grandchildren. It wasn't, it wasn't that. His concern is not, is not demographic or it's not, it's not humanistic, but it is intensely spiritual. It's the honor of God. Now let's look in verses 28 through 24 and let's see what kind of opposition then David has to his heart. 
that is concerned about the honor of God. Um, first of all, verse 28, you'll see his brother is a problem. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard and repeated them before Saul, and he uh, and repeated before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And there were came, when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Well, let's stop right there. You get the picture. Ralph Davis, in his commentary on 1 Samuel, says that at this point, that David didn't just have one Goliath. He actually had three Goliaths he had to deal with. And I want you to look at these three Goliaths. The first one is David's oldest brother, Eliab. Is it not interesting here how Eliab doesn't get angry at Goliath, but Eliab does get angry at David? Is that not amazing? And he says, you're being so presumptuous. You're being proud. I know what you're really doing. You're just trying to get off your work. You're supposed to be out there keeping the sheep, and you're looking for some excuse to hang out here and watch your brothers go to battle. Why don't you get back there and take care of the sheep and stop fooling around? You know how annoying it is with little brothers, some of you? Just, I was a little brother. I was annoying my big brother all the time. Uh, <clears throat> so I know how that goes. But Eliab gets angry at him. And here's what you're going to find out if you have a 
heart after God. If you believe that God will provide for you when you take up your chief concern, which is promoting and defending His glory, you'll find that even your own brothers in the church will sometimes get angry with you and think that you're just putting yourself forward, that you're being presumptuous, that for some reason you must think that you can do great things when all you are is a little runt. And furthermore, when you act like that, you're making me look really bad because <laughs> I'm the one who's got the, I've got the commission to be in the army and I'm not willing to go against Goliath. Get out of here. You're trying to make us all look stupid. We're afraid and rightly so. And the reason you're not afraid is because you're stupid. So get back to the sheep. So you'll find, even in spiritual warfare, if you're really trusting the Lord, there are times when your brothers will actually resent you. And it's not your fault. Now, sometimes it is your fault. I mean, take the story of Joseph. Joseph was a, you know, an upstanding young man. He's one of the heroes of the Bible, for sure. But Joseph was... You know, 17 years old, give him, a, give him a break. He was showing off his coat of many colors and how much his daddy loved him more than he loved all the other brothers. Well, you know, so there was some arrogance there. But in this text, there's not a hint of arrogance, although David had all kinds of problems. I'm sure that was one of them. But David was provoking the anger of his brothers because he was incensed at the dishonor given to God and David was willing to do something about it. His first Goliath was the church was his brothers. Secondly, notice that one of his Goliaths was the king himself, the king who should have been out there fighting. And look at verse 33. Saul says, you are not able. So Eliab tells him, you are presumptuous. And Saul says, Saul the king, the great warrior against the Philistines, with this experienced general of the, of the high command, says to him, you're not able. Take a word from an experienced warrior. You're not able. Don't go. So David has to convince him. Now in his words with Saul, you get some of the most amazing words about David. You get actually the secret to his life. In verses 34 through 37a, as David explains himself to the commander-in-chief, you get... David's real explanation. And here's the explanation. David said, King, when I was just a shepherd boy, and I am one now, when one of my sheep would be taken into the claws of a bear or a lion, and you have to realize in those days, Israel had many bears and many lions. They don't have them today, but they did then. When a bear or a lion comes and takes one of my lambs, I go after him. And I take him by the beard and I fight him hand to hand. Now, I don't know if any of you have had a hand to hand combat with a lion or a bear. Uh, the ones that have, I read about them in the commercial appeal and they're not here anymore. That's what happens with people who take on lions and bears. This kid did it. And you can see something about his heart here. He's a shepherd, he's responsible for sheep. And Jesus, I think, makes reference to this later on in Luke 15. He says, if you have a good shepherd and he's got a hundred sheep and 99 of them are right there doing fine and just one of them goes over the hillside, what does that good shepherd do? He goes after the one. He'll leave the 99 and he'll go after one. And if you want an example of someone who did that, it was David. He cared about the sheep and he was a good shepherd. He actually would 
laid down his life for a little lamb because that lamb was under his charge. Now, gentlemen, I'm looking through this room of men from many different churches and who have lots of people under your charge. You have wives and children. You've got people in your church, your small groups, and your Sunday school classes. A few of you are preachers. And I think you get here with David the secret to the shepherding life. You are willing to lay down your life for every one of those sheep. And that's what it means to be a shepherd. If you're a Presbyterian elder and you've taken uh, eldership vows, those obligate you to lay down your life for the sheep. Not just 99 of them, but all 100 of them. They're yours. You're responsible for them. And you will substitute your life for their life. That's what David's doing. You get the secret to his life here. Now, that's not the big secret. That's a little secret. But the big secret is this. If you'll look in David's language in this text in verse 37, notice David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now look at that verse. Here's what David is saying. Saul, I'm not telling you this about me to impress you solely or primarily with my skill in battle. That because I killed a lion, I can kill a nine foot six inch monster. That's not the reason I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is that I did these extraordinary things because God did them. He did the extraordinary work through a boy to kill a lion. So you can look back now, get inside David's head. He's before Saul, and David's just recounting his diary. He's just, David's just giving him his oral diary from his own experience. And in David's mind, this is the key, in David's mind when he was fighting a bear and a lion, he was prayerful. He was saying, Lord, I've got to get this lamb out of this lion's grasp, and I, I can't do it on my own. You've got to do it through me. Because David is saying here, Saul, I've got to tell you now, when I was fighting, it was the Lord who was fighting through me. David knew that because in the experience itself, he was trusting the Lord. David, this 12-year-old kid can't go out and kill a bear with his bare hands unless God is doing something extraordinary through him. Now, this is the real key to David's life. He is concerned primarily with the glory of God. He's concerned with the glory of God as it is reflected in the prosperity of his lambs. And he trusts the Lord God, whose honor he's defending, to work powerfully through him to take on whatever foes come. And that it's not David's strength. This is the key here. He's saying, Saul, I did it not because of my strength, but the Lord delivered me. And the battles that I fight are through an alien power working through my boy's body. And gentlemen, that is the key to the Christian life. You are constantly depending upon an alien power to work through you to accomplish the righteous deeds of a man whose heart is after God's glory and wants to see it advanced and defended in society. This is the key as he confronts this second Goliath. That's the key to David's life. Now, Thirdly, he faces the world champion, Goliath. The Goliath of all Goliaths. But you'll notice that before he ever gets to Goliath, he's already run through the gamut. He's dealt with the church, his brothers. He's dealt with the commander-in-chief, his commander. He's defended himself. 
He is, he is set on what He's going to do. He's explained Himself. He's working through the little Goliath before He gets to the big Goliath. And gentlemen, that's the key to every major battle you've got. There are a whole bunch of little battles that lead up to the big one. And you're never going to get to the big one if you don't fight the little ones. In other words, if you don't have your mind set on the glory of God and you lay down your life for this purpose, then you're never going to get an opportunity to fight in the big battle. Here it is. He fights the big battle. Now notice here that the main point, I think, of verses 38 through 44 is David's comparative weakness. I mean, you see it that Eliab says you're presumptuous. Uh, Saul says you're not able. And then Goliath says you're a runt. You think I'm a dog that you can just come out here and beat me with a little kid like this? Look, he's so young. He, he looks like a little girl. His face is just so beautiful. And he looks like a little cherub. You're going to send a cherub out here to fight me? You think I'm a dog? You think you can just scare me off with a few sticks? You get that in verse 43. So... David is very aware of his own weakness. And the reason I'm convinced that we often do not engage the battle and that we do not win the battle is that we're measuring ourselves uh, against the enemy and just simply looking at ourselves as the answer. And then you, you decide to enter the battle whether you have the prospects to win or not based on your own strength. David didn't measure like that. David knew he brought nothing to the table intrinsically. He didn't bring anything in his natural strength. You can see all throughout there, David's very aware of his own weakness. And it's, it's clear in everything that he says from here on. What David's measuring rod is, is what's the power of God as opposed to the power of Goliath. That's the way he's thinking. That's the way the man of God's own heart thinks. Now, let's look at verses 45 through 49 and look at the battle itself for, for a few moments. In verse 45 we read, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. David later wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let's keep reading. Uh, uh, well, let's look here first of all and just notice that God's, God's man has God. We saw in our previous point that God's man has several Goliaths, but the main point here is God's man has God. Yeah, you've got enemies out there, but you have the living God on your side. And David's basic question to his brothers and to the church and to King Saul is this. Does it not make any difference to us that our God is the one true and living God? In other words, David says, let's not look at this militaristically. Let's not look at it economically. Let's look at this theologically. 
And let's ask ourselves an important spiritual question. Is there a God or is there not? Is that God Israel's God? And is He alive and willing to fight for us? That's the question. And once you answer that, the answer should be exactly what David's doing. And he enters into battle, and you'll notice that this great speech that he gives in verses 45 through 47 uh, in the Hebrew, it's 63 words, that section there, where he wins the battle spiritually. He wins it in his speech. He's already won the battle. He's preached already. And in the proclamation itself is a mighty victory because... What all the heavenly hosts see, all the angels of God, and all the church of Jesus Christ sees is a man who will stand up and trust in in God. So spiritually, David's already won the battle because he's named the name of God and claimed Him as the ruler and uh, champion of all. But then notice, secondly, in verses 48 through 51, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Now, 48 through 51a takes 36 words. So David's speech is 63 and the account of the battle is very brief. It's just 36 words. The main point is in the speech. And the battle is simply working out what David believed. Now, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, David and Goliath, uh, he takes great delight in this story and kind of retells it. But he retells it from an interesting perspective. Uh, Gladwell is saying, you know, everybody's really misunderstood this story all along. They think that it's some unusual, miraculous thing that David kills Goliath. No, says Gladwell. What people need to realize is that there's always a way for the little Davids to kill the Goliaths. He says, as a matter of fact, look at Goliath. He's nine foot six. He, he has this, probably has this tumor on his pituitary gland. With that tumor, sometimes you get double vision. So he says Goliath probably couldn't even see straight. And that's the reason that he had his shield bearer in front of him because he couldn't even see where David was. And he couldn't move very fast. He was kind of like the artillery, but David's like a cavalry. And he's a slingshotter. And he said, and in ancient warfare, the slingshooters were, were deadly. And he says, this is not so miraculous a story. It's just a story of good warfare by David. Nice try, Malcolm Gladwell. The point here is always the point of the story from God's perspective. And the point from God's perspective is David was a little boy who was not up to this battle. The commander-in-chief who was very experienced against the Philistines saw it clearly. You have no hope. You're not able to do this. And David did it. And the reason he did it was because he trusted in the Lord's power working through him. He just took up five smooth stones in the Valley of Elah. When I was in the Valley of Elah, standing about where David did, I just picked up one of those stones. It probably was about this size. This is from the Valley of Elah. A couple of inches, I don't know, not even a pound. He just picked up that stone. He took a slingshot, not one of these, (laughs) one of these. And with one of these, you can get something going between 100 and 150 miles an hour. Now, I don't know, you know, when you watch uh, somebody who could throw a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, you're sitting there on TV, you know, from center field watching it, you're saying, well, look at that ball, it just kind of glides right in there. No, if you go to the game, it's zip, zip. <laughs> you, can't even, you can barely see the ball. And I think one of the greatest acts in all of sports is a hitter hitting a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. I have no idea how those guys do that. 
I mean, I can hardly see that ball. And to think you're going to, you know, you're going to start your swing before the ball gets there, and then you're going to make up your mind whether it really is a fastball or a changeup about halfway through your swing, and then you're going to go all the way through the swing and actually hit that ball well enough to get a hit. That's one of the greatest athletic moments in human sports. This thing's going at least that fast from David, and it's very accurate. And David hits him right there, the one place in his little helmet that was not covered, <laughs> and it embeds in his head. That was by the power of God, the same way he killed the lions and the bears. God did it. And David knew that God would take up his cause. And just like Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, David could say too, if he doesn't save me, that's fine too, but I'm going to go down in flames. I'm going to go down standing up for the Lord. And that's basically what all these men did who trusted the Lord. They're willing to lay their lives down for the glory of God. So we see here then that he wins the battle spiritually and he wins the battle physically. Now lastly, let's look at verses 50 through 58 and we'll close. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. That's a very important phrase right there. David was without a sword. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they said, Oh, now we're your servants. Take us. No, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistine fell on the, Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistine and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, because of course Saul wants to know, who's, who's my son-in-law's family <laughs> going to be here? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. He's obscure. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. I want you to notice a couple of things about this text. Notice that God's man has God to win the battle, to repel the enemy, verses 51 through 53, and to restore God's honor, to restore God's honor. Now think with me for just a moment in our closing minutes about this text and what it means to us today. You're told this very interesting thing about David, that after he had felled Goliath, he goes, off, he goes up and chops off his head, which of course enabled him to show that the victory had been won and to, to display the great victory all over Israel. But notice where David goes. He goes to Jerusalem. Now this is a little strange, because at this point in Israel's history, it appears as though the Israelites did not own Israel. The Jebusites were still in Israel. So why in the world did David go to Israel? Or to do Jerusalem, I'm sorry. Why did he go to Jerusalem? Something very interesting here, because David seemed to have known, because later as king, he would see to this, that God's presence 
in the Ark of the Covenant and ultimately through Solomon, his son, building the temple, with the temple itself, God's presence will be established in Jerusalem. And what it appears that David has done is probably go right back to Mount Moriah, the famous place where Abraham offered up Isaac and God provided a substitute at Mount Moriah. That's in Jerusalem. In fact, that's the Temple Mount. And some scholars suggest that what David actually did, he took the head of Goliath and triumphed on Mount Moriah with that head. Now, why is this significant to us? Because a thousand years later, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, goes to that same mount and there he lays down his life. And he there, we are told clearly in the Apostles' Doctrine, that there he defeated all of the principalities, the powers, Goliaths. He defeated Satan and all of his minions right there on that hill by laying down his life. And he holds up his own crucified body as the evidence that God has defeated all of His and our enemies. And through the resurrection, He validates this great victory that God has triumphed over even death. So the real David, the son of David, comes and conquers on our behalf, trusting His Father to work through Him, even dying on the cross for His lambs, not letting a one of them go. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. This is what this text is about. That when God sees an enemy of His people, He raises up a little David. And we're all little Davids if we're in Christ. He raises up a little David. And that's exactly what He did with His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through humble beginnings, through an unlikely manner of salvation, He provides for us a warrior who defeats our enemy. That's what God's done for us. Now you'll notice at the closing of the text, Saul said, who's this kid's family? He's going to be marrying my daughter. Well, gentlemen, look at this. When Jesus Christ wins the great victory for us, what does His Father do? He says, take my daughter, the church, and I want you to marry her and be her bridegroom. And you nurture her for all eternity. And He puts us together. We are the King's children. And He's given us our bridegroom and our warrior and our Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what you see in 1 Samuel is this beautiful foretelling of the great drama of Jesus Christ coming down here to destroy evil and all of her champions. And that's exactly what He's done. And one day when we get to the end of the day and we see the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned on high and all of us celebrating that He took off the head of Goliath for us and made the way for us to live forever with our blessed God. Let us pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the reality of your salvation. We're thankful for the amazing way in which you do it. We thank you for raising up for us a champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son. We thank you that in him we too shall triumph and all of us shall run down the enemy because the Lord Jesus has taken off the head of Satan himself, our great adversary. We pray now that you'll send us out into the world with confidence to know that even in our weakness, you have made us strong. Even in our disability and inability, you've made us able. In our insufficiency, you've made us sufficient because of your Spirit's strength working through your people and raising us up even to take on Goliath today. 
So Lord, strengthen us. Give us faith. Give us a heart after the heart of our own God. For we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.